Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We had gotten so friendly with one another and I, knew she, I didn't realize she was manipulating me. I forgot about that, but I, I remember her and I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Super nice. But like, yeah, you were definitely being manipulated. <laughs> I thought she loved me. <laughs> That's Hollywood. Everything's so fake. Welcome to Millennial, the home of pretend adulting and real talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. We got to kick off the show this week um, by turning to a, a Senate judiciary hearing about banned books and free speech. Um, Senator John Kennedy, Republican of Louisiana, does have the floor right now. And I really want to make sure that we tune in for this important coverage of how the Senate Judiciary Committee is uh, addressing issues of book banning. Let's take two books that have been much discussed. The first one is called All Boys Aren't Blue, and I will quote from it. I put some lube on and got him on his knees, and I began to slide into him from behind. I pulled out of him and kissed him while he masturbated. Whoa. He asked me to turn over while he slipped a condom on himself. Wow. This was my ass, and I was struggling to imagine someone inside me. (laughs) He got on top and slowly inserted himself into me. It was the worst pain I think I have ever felt in my life. Oh, well. Eventually, I felt a mix of pleasure with the pain. Oh, that, I mean, that's, that's gay anal for you. I mean, that's, that's all it is, really, right there. You just summarized it well. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, clearly, these are the kinds of books that represent a threat to America. And I think uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee just wanted to make sure that we were all aware that some books have sex in them. It reminds me of my um, Cursed Child fan fiction. Do you remember reading that, both of you? I'm not sure if you both pained yourself with that. I do, but I don't remember specific details. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I thought your Cursed Child fan fiction was actually better written and spicier (laughs) than this. So I had a line like, Scorpius is inside of me or something like that. (laughs) It's so funny to see the kinds of content that gets boomers like clutching their pearls in a tizzy. I'm like, man, y'all clearly haven't read fan fiction. (laughs) Yep. I know, right? This is like so clinical in comparison to some of the crazy stuff you see. Yeah. Written by fans online. Well, this is only one minute of six minutes and 33 seconds. So maybe there's more hot talk. Oh, there is. Oh, I'll have to watch (laughs) this whole thing later. 
Before we get into ruminating on a potential blast from the past, wanted to give a quick plug for the Millennial 2023 Listener Survey. Starting today, we have a survey that will be open to all of our listeners through October the 6th. We want to know what you love about the show, what you think we could do to improve it, and what other content you would be interested in seeing us make in the future. We're also asking anyone who supports us on our Patreon about their experience so we can learn what kinds of bonus content y'all would be interested in seeing in the future and where we have some opportunities to refresh our current offerings. The survey is open to all, whether you are a Patreon supporter or not, and will be available through our website in our show notes and across our various social channels. Thanks so much in advance for taking a break from making avocado toast and killing industries to help us improve the show. Yes, thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing everybody's feedback. We can't be a show called Millennial without talking about the biggest news to hit millennials in a while, at least from a pop culture perspective. So um, NSYNC may or may not be getting back together. Spoilers, they're not really. But we're going to go over why this got a lot of traction. So To start things off, for anyone who doesn't know, I put together a brief little timeline of events as to like how we got to where we are right now. So rumors of an NSYNC reunion first started swirling back in March when the first trailer for Trolls Band Together dropped. The trailer itself made quite a few references to iconic 90s boy bands, including NSYNC, but not limited to NSYNC. And then just the fact that, you know, Justin Timberlake is heavily involved in lending his voice to this franchise. And his character was talking about how, like, a band left him behind. So there was like some kind of breakup. It was like this is like a little too close to the truth, but kind of like spinning it on its head because we all know that Justin is the one who left. So like that's kind of like when things kind of started here and it really started picking up steam in August when more promo for Trolls Band Together dropped. And this time it came in the form of these movie posters that just featured the iconic NSYNC N with like the star to one side. And there was like a QR code that you could use to like take you to this like very, very short little snippet of a of a song. So everyone was like, what does this mean? (laughs) Um, And then last week on September 12th, all five members attended the MTV VMAs together and they presented the award for best pop video to Taylor Swift. And this doesn't really seem like a big deal, but it kind of is because it's very rare that all five of them get together. Um, The last time they did this was when Justin Timberlake was receiving his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And then before that, it was also at the VMAs when Justin was being honored with the Video Vanguard Award. And that was a few years before. So after this, the band was like blowing up online, just like dropping teases here and there. And everyone started wondering if maybe like this was the moment we'd all been waiting for. Were they finally going to announce a reunion tour? And on September 14th, uh, they announced that they were just releasing a new single, which is their first in over two decades. It's called Better Place, and it's officially part of the Trolls Band Together soundtrack. And I feel kind of bad saying that it's just a single because, like, it is a big deal that all five of these guys are back in the studio together. And they released this really heartwarming little, like, montage of their time in the studio and stuff. So, like, 
it is a big deal, but I think that everybody kind of just got their hopes up a little too high, so it doesn't really feel like that big of a deal. Yeah, for Trolls 3, and when you listen to the sample of the song, actually, we should listen to it so we're all on the same page. Mm -hmm. The song, it just doesn't feel classic in sync. And I think when everybody's so excited about an in sync reunion, everybody's just thinking about that in sync sound. sounds like any old pop song to me, right? I have some thoughts on that, but I wanted to give Laura a chance to to speak if she had any thoughts before I like go off on my little rant. I actually feel like it's kind of catchy. It has a slight grooviness to it, like a little bit of funk to the beat, which I appreciate. I can't say that, you know, the vocal talents are any better than they were in the 90s. I think they're still pretty heavily <laughs> auto-tuned. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it feels like an in-sync song. I think that part of the disappointment is it's not in-sync dropping a new single, signaling that they're going to go back on tour, signaling that they're getting back together. It's in-sync reunited to f- record this one single for a trolls movie <laughs> yeah i think it's the association that makes it disappointing yeah i would i would agree with that i think that you have to think about this single better place which by the way officially drops on september 29th for anybody that's looking to stream the track in full you have to look at it as in sync um coming into like 2023 because You've, we've already seen like examples of the Backstreet Boys playing around with a sound that sounds familiar to what we knew of them producing in the 90s. And it's not that those songs are bad. It's just that they don't work in the pop landscape as we see it today. And I think that Better Place is really indicative of like the sound that we would see the band playing with if they were to drop an entirely new album in 2023, which is why I think like, I don't know, in some ways it's cause for excitement depending on like what brand of pop music you like. Um, I think that that is a testament to just like whether or not you like Justin Timberlake, you can't deny that he has a good ear for music. He's really good um, from a production standpoint. JC has also been doing a lot of producing since the band broke up. Justin Timberlake, if you look at like the 2020 experience, was already kind of playing around with that neo-soul Motown sound. And that works really well with Better Place. And their harmonies as a group are really well suited to like that, that like 70s Motown 
60s funky beat that Laura was kind of referencing. So that's kind of where I stand on it here. And also maybe why people are extra disappointed that this might just be a one off, despite the fact that like if there had not been so much lead up to it, maybe we would have been like super excited that they were just giving us anything at all. It's all to put attention on this movie. That's why. I'm sure Justin Timberlake makes a ton of money from these Trolls movies. And to your point about JT knowing how to create some hits, we can't forget that first Trolls single, Can't Stop the Feeling. That was absolutely Mm -hmm. huge. That's a great example, yeah. Yeah, so he knows what he's doing. I hope it's a big song like that. This song isn't hooking me thus far. I guess my point was that if this is a one and done for NSYNC, if they're getting back together for the first time in forever... Why not go for that classic in, in sync sound? Because that's what people want right now. More of that classic in sync sound. Yeah. That's I guess that's just my takeaway. If they were to do a whole new album, yes, I definitely understand not repeating what they did with um no strings attached mm-hmm. or something. But yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just I just I think it's getting everybody so excited for a song that isn't that might not feel in sync to people. Yeah, it also just depends on like what your definition of the classic in sync sound is, because like I would argue that, um, you know, even like it's going to be me sounds way different than Gone or Girlfriend, mm-hmm. which was on their their last album that they released, Celebrity, right? Like you started seeing them kind of play more with like the R&B hip hop sound. Um, in contrast to it's going to be me or even I want you back, which was like very steeped in like the Swedish pop genius that is Max Martin. So, yeah, so there, there's like but I get it like there's like so many different touchstones to these artists that we grew up with. And like, I think that to your point, when most normal people think of NSYNC, they're going to think of it's going to be me. Bye bye bye. And like that is like a very specific sound really steeped in like the early 2000s where everything was about looking to the future. So you had all these like really crazy sounds going on in the production that like we don't really see in music today anymore. So even like the Backstreet Boys were kind of doing the same thing. Like if you look at Larger Than Life, like from a production standpoint, a lot of that had like really was playing around with like really futuristic sound production. I see. See, this is why I'm glad we're talking about this. Pam can do this deep dive that that we're all looking for. (laughs) I can't describe music in this way so eloquently. Oh, thank you. I'm just like, make it sound like old in sync. (laughs) Well, speaking of the nostalgia factor, Pam, from a musical journalism point of view, I'm curious for your perspective on why isn't NSYNC using this moment to rebrand or do a reunion tour release like a limited I don't know a limited reproduction of past songs like doing their own Taylor's version of their classic 90s hits (laughs) like why our version again why aren't they doing that because they kind of got fucked over they did speaking of Taylor like they got fucked over um you know early on in their careers as well why now with the amount of millennial nostalgic influence that they could have, why are they not harnessing that to do something apart from being the Trolls movie? <laughs> I feel like that's, <laughs> that is the million dollar question that everyone has been asking. And I'm so glad that you asked it because over the weekend, Billboard released this article that was basically saying that 
NSYNC is not going on tour, but if they did, they could make bank, basically. We're talking about like billions of dollars that they could make if they decided to do a reunion tour, probably even if they decided to do a residency in Las Vegas. And I don't think anybody really understands why they don't want to do this. I think part of the reason probably lies in the fact that Justin Timberlake does not want to come back to do that. Um, And I think that like that point in particular is kind of a moot point as as far as fans are concerned, because for the last few years, what you've really heard amongst the fans is that like nobody cares if Justin comes back or not because JC was really like the vocal talent of that group. And so like, do we even really need Justin at this point? Probably not because the um, demand for like even, you know, four fifths of NSYNC far outweighs like the Justin effect that was in full force in the 2000s and in the 90s. I take that point. But Justin was also kind of the face of NSYNC. So, yeah, he was a he's a showman, right? Like, yeah, he was the best dancer. He was like, you know, he had the look. It's not that he's like devoid of vocal talent. But when you like pit him up against JC, JC just had the better runs. To me, that would sort of just feel like a tribute band version if it was missing one 20 percent of its members. And I think it'd be cool to still see them and maybe they team up with somebody else to join them to have like a quintuplet. Is that the right word? Um, I don't know who you pick somebody Mm -hmm. from Backstreet Boys or new kids on the block. It's funny funny you mentioned that because. Well, I have two. Well, I have a question for you first. Did you feel like it was a tribute band when they went to Coachella and did a surprise performance with Ariana Grande? Because I didn't. And I feel like a lot of people didn't. And that's why it's kind of like. So that was everybody but Justin. Yeah. I guess I forgot about this. Yeah. Okay. It was. I, I, I guess I'd have to go back and rewatch that. I, I don't. I don't remember mm-hmm. watching it. But the other thing I was going to say is that, you know, Lance Bass has had multiple podcasts. And so he's always out there answering questions, doing the Lord's work for the unsafe fans that just can't <laughs> be satiated. <laughs> he said that he would like to see, you know, somebody like a Darren Chris come in and, you know, take okay. on that role, which like I feel like Darren Chris does kind of have a very like croony kind of voice that would work well with a yeah. five part harmony. So. So, like, I mean, with Queen, Queen, air quotes, is still touring without Freddie Mercury. Now, obviously, that's a different situation. Freddie died a long time ago. Rest in peace. There are other. Yeah, rest in peace. There are other instances I can't exactly remember off my head, though. You mentioned Vegas. Um, This new Sphere venue is opening up and U2 is going to have a residency without their drummer, Larry Mullen Jr., who's been one one quarter of the band since the start. And that's because he had uh, surgery on his wrists within the last year and he's still recovering from that. And as a big U2 fan, I've been interested in going, but it also does kind of take some of the excitement out of it for me because one fourth of the band is missing. So I guess I kind of just feel torn on this. And that's why I'm resisting this idea of in sync without Justin, yeah. if they were to tour. That's totally fair. I know like, um, a couple other examples of bands that have gone on it, like um, journey has gone on without Steve Perry. They just have a guy that sounds a lot like him. You're right. There are a lot of examples of, of bands that have successfully gone on to do that, but because nostalgia is, such a huge selling point right now 
people might just take what they can get. But it does seem really like to me, it feels like a no brainer for them to do like, you know, even a short residency. Yeah. In Vegas. Yeah. And like, what is that going to cost Justin Timberlake? I could see the sphere trying to sign them up. There was a report that Harry Styles might might be in talks for the sphere. Like there's definitely interest in getting. Um, well, Harry Styles would be like, I don't know, millennials and Gen Z who would be interested in that. But I'm sure the sphere would be up for a lot of. Uh, Gen Z uh, millennials coming out to the sphere. Apparently, there's a new rumors about Britney coming back to Vegas. Obviously, that's a huge millennial audience. So Sublime was the other um, example I was going to give. Sorry, it just came back to me. Sublime, it like plays without. Oh yeah, um, their lead singer who passed away. Yeah, but, yeah. So it's not out of the ordinary, but it is kind of weird when like that person is still alive. But like mm-hmm. maybe like I know with the Coachella performance, Justin gave his blessing and he was like yeah you guys should do it and i think ariana would do great and like put her in my role so i don't know maybe that would make people feel a little bit better about it and like less cheated yes a a statement's definitely necessary larry mullen jr of youtube did that as well for the vegas show and they recorded a new song with him involved in the music video that they actually shot here in vegas like three nights ago so i think it's all about just like letting everybody know things are still cool it's not there's no drama yeah were we team in sync, Backstreet Boys, or someone else? I was definitely in sync. Uh, my sister was Backstreet Boys. I was also in sync. I was team Spice Girls, baby. <laughs> my other love. <laughs> no, but what, what about what about boy bands though? I really wasn't into boy bands. Oh, okay. Like that. I mean, obviously the big hits. Mm-hmm. Bye, bye, bye. It's gonna be me. Like all of those things, of course are like nostalgic earworms for me to this day like it triggers something deep in my brain to hear yeah everybody (laughs) but like as a kid I just wasn't that into the boy bands like that along the same lines can't talk about 90s pop without talking about the queen Britney Spears um she has a book coming out in October late October next month we're gonna get Britney's big tell all tell all memoir and i wanted to know if you all were going to be picking that up because i think that i probably won't be able to stay away for better or worse yeah uh, <laughs> i just know what i do want to read the book i'm definitely interested in what she has to say we just it's just going to be so apparent that she didn't write it herself and that kind of take just like knowing how she writes on instagram that's so true (laughs) it'll be interesting to see like the writing voice they've crafted for her um but yeah definitely interested i hope there's a big like oprah interview around this that seems like almost inevitable oh yeah what do we think is gonna be the uh were you silent or (laughs) silenced moment of that oprah interview with britney just repurpose that question and ask it because it applies to britney too that's true that's true is she is Brittany doing her own audiobook? I I wish she was. I don't know if she is or not, but if she is, my library doesn't have it in their catalog yet. I was kind of hoping to check it out or like get it early on okay. the wait list. I just wonder how much vocal fry we would be subjected to. Imagine if like whoever they picked to read it for her had to have that authenticity. Oh my god, with <laughs> with the croaky voice. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, we've mentioned journalism once or twice here already today. And coming up after the break, we're going to talk about Rotten Tomatoes and critical reviews of movies. We'll be right back. 
All right. So I saw this article. It was a deep dive on Vulture. There's been some drama around RottenTomatoes.com. I think everybody knows this site. Studios and publicists have been able to successfully skew movie rating scores, which might not shock people, but this Vulture deep dive really exposed uh, a couple of stories in particular that people were not aware of. Uh, The main story in this Vulture article, we learned that a small movie publicity company called Bunker 15 was paying critics to nudge the critics towards writing positive reviews in order to game Rotten Tomatoes scoring system and help the movie receive the coveted certified fresh badge. Budget 15 saw that their movie Ophelia, uh, it starred Daisy Ridley, had 13 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and it had been averaging a 46% average, which, of course, would earn it the Rotten title. And that's a big problem for any movie, and this is part of uh, the reason I wanted to talk about this today, um, and especially a small indie one. There was this 2018 study by Morning Consult, and it found that one-third of U.S. adults check Rotten Tomatoes before seeing a film, and 63% of those people have opted not to see a film due to its score on the site. So in other words, a majority of people who look at Rotten Tomatoes for reviews say it strongly impacts whether or not they'll see the movie. It could stop them altogether. Also from Morning Consult, Quote, Rotten Tomatoes has been blamed for crippling films revenues with its low review scores, such as Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and Baywatch. The films respectively earned 29% and 17% ratings on Rotten Tomatoes and grossed less domestically than their production budgets. Did you two see those movies, by the way? Pirates 5 and Baywatch? I I think I saw both of them, actually. Pirates 5 was bad objectively bad (laughs) yeah it was not a good movie i didn't need rotten tomatoes to tell me that yeah and i just you know the fact that these bombs especially for pirates like that was a major movie franchise for it to bomb you know martin consult's really blaming rotten tomatoes as a major influence here but so jumping back to ophelia it ended up with a 46 percent on rotten tomatoes um, like I had said a couple minutes ago. And then the site added eight more reviews. And now I'll quote Vulture. Seven of those eight new reviews were favorable, and most came from critics who have reviewed at least one other Bunker 15 movie. The writer of a negative review told Vulture that Bunker 15 lobbied them to change it. If the critic wanted to give it a barely overall positive, then I do know the editors at Rotten Tomatoes and can get it switched a Bunker 15 employee wrote. And Vulture also discovered another negative review of Ophelia from this period that was not counted by Rotten Tomatoes by a writer whose positive reviews of other Bunker 15 films have been recorded by the aggregator. Ophelia did climb the tomato meter to to a 62% average, which then flipped the movie from Rotten to Fresh. And then the next month, the distributor of the movie, IFC Films, announced that it had acquired Ophelia for release in the U.S. So basically, they bought their way into being acquired. Studios will further, and this is another angle, manipulate a movie's Rotten Tomatoes score by ensuring that fan sites who tend to write more favorable reviews will get to post their reviews at the same time as more professional critics, think like New York Times, um, at bigger outlets to help prevent snobbier critics from having too much of an impact on Rotten Tomatoes average at the outset of the average being posted. 
and I'll stop talking in a second. Vulture points to one example of a recent blunder by Disney in which they didn't let the movie blogs post reviews, think hypable, at uh, the same time as big critics. The latest Indiana Jones movie premiered at Cannes earlier this year, and that's a place known for snobby critics. And when they those snobby critics posted their reviews, Indy appeared, it premiered on Rotten Tomatoes at a 33% average. And I remember seeing those reviews because it was very hyped up that movie. I think it's the final one for Harrison Ford. Um, I was like, wow, I was interested in this. And now seeing how terrible it evidently is, I'm not going to go see it. And I still haven't seen it. Now, that said, once the friendlier critics came in, the Rotten Tomatoes score moved up to 69%, which I didn't know it had moved up that high. But the initial damage may have already been done because the film was considered a box office bomb. (laughs) I also just think like that's not a movie for cans. I don't know what Disney was thinking. Right, I know. Well, I guess because it's Harrison Ford and it's the last Who one cares? That's, with him. That's not a Cannes movie. Like they should know that. They've put Pixar movies at Cannes before. Yeah, but what do, like, you, what do you think of that? I think that's like a little bit more. I think animation feels more highbrow than like a traditional action movie. And I, and I don't think like all circles take animation as seriously as they should. But I think there's like a space for animation. If you're looking at like highbrow, highbrow critique. Okay. okay. But also like because those movies are geared towards children, the criteria they're looking at is probably different than something that's geared more to- towards adults. I wanted to talk about this fan site angle. Pam, since you've been around the block, especially when it comes to movie journalism, I, how many did you review movies often, whether hypable or elsewhere? Um, that's not my like uh top tier bread and butter, but I have done it before, and I've done it for hypeable before. Yeah, I wouldn't say like I'm a movie writer. Yeah, me neither. But I did it sometimes just because I was like, oh, cool, movie screening nearby. Sure, I'll go see a movie for free and on a studio lot. That's cool as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice this type of manipulation happening amongst the um publicists? Well, we definitely never got paid extra to go to these things, but I think that like <laughs> what they're banking on is that you're so um starstruck and dazzled by these experiences that you'll give them a good review. So a really good example yes. is I did the review for for Coco for Hypeable and yeah, Disney and Pixar is like that's a really good example of like a studio that will wine and dine you from start to finish. Yeah. But the reality is like as cool as it was to like go to Pixar and see how the movie gets made. And like they they put together an entire itinerary. You're doing arts and crafts. They're feeding you. They're show, like giving you like interviews with people. They're showing you all the bells and whistles. But the, for me, the reality is like if, if that movie had sucked, there's no way I could have written a favorable review. My family, for one, would have disowned me because like it's deeply steeped in Mexican culture, right? Yeah, yeah. But then also, like, how could I have, like, lived with myself? But I know that, like, they're banking on the fact that people that come from fan sites who are maybe, like, either, like, not actually traditional journalists or just, like, not often given those opportunities are going to be so grateful that they will, in turn, write favorably so that they get asked back and then they can do more of those things. Honestly, I felt influenced that way. Because when you're small little a small little film blogger trying to make their way up in the world, 
the fact that Disney reached out to Hypeable, Universal, these other studios, and were inviting us to the studio lot. Are you kidding me? That's the coolest thing in the world. But I, I feel like we had a lot of opinionated people on the staff. And so I, I don't yeah. think that like in that sense, it was like it's it's a good example of like tiny little site doing what the big studios want. So you yeah. have some integrity yeah. there. And, and, <laughs> and I would still criticize, mm-hmm. but I definitely felt influenced because yeah. of and how publicists treat you, too. They're basically sucking your dick nonstop. And that actually took me a, a long time to realize, like the first publicist I worked with uh, for MuggleNet uh, at Warner Brothers, she was always so nice to me. And one of the smartest things I ever heard Ben say to Ben ever said to me was, you know, she's just doing that. So you'll write good stuff. Right. And it, it like I almost fell out of my chair. Like I had never even considered that before. Like we had gotten so friendly with one another. And I, knew she, I didn't realize she was manipulating me. That's funny. But she was nice. I forgot about that. But I, I remember her and I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Super nice. But like, yeah, you were definitely being manipulated. <laughs> I thought she loved me. That's Hollywood. Everything's so fake. But what did 18-year-old Andrew know? I was I was just like You don't you don't. <laughs> I actually like I, I also learned like um when I was at um Entertainment Weekly, like there would be times when, you know, we would get invited to do cool stuff. They don't like necessarily need to write like you to write anything, but like they kind of like to their credit, everybody that I worked with was like very aware of like any interests the interns had. So if it was like a good experience and they're like, oh, like Pam would love this. They'd be like, do you want to go? And it's like, oh, like, I don't think I have time to like write the thing. And they're like, oh, no, you don't have to write about it. You can just go. It's like, well, won't they ask me to write about it? It's like, well, yeah, but you don't have to. It's like, oh, like that, that blew my mind because I just like up until that point I assumed that like if I went to a thing I had to write something about it and they're like no you could just go right. like it's not like a a contract like they invited you you go but like it, it's not like it's not a transaction and I don't think like a small site could get away with that and like keep a good relationship but if you're at a larger right exactly if you're at a larger media company 100% you could just like go for the free food or, <laughs> or for like the cool experience and then like not do anything with it yeah. Which is wild. Uh, to like me. hypable, I mean hypable and other types of I'm gonna mention mommy bloggers in a moment. Like yeah. Disney had us under their thumb, like we were just their bitch. <laughs> but so mommy bloggers, this is another way I think they 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 spin really hard too. And this isn't mentioned in the Vulture article, but I was thinking about mommy bloggers when reading this. By mommy bloggers, I'm talking well, I mean, it's self-explanatory, really, but I I noticed over the years that Disney had formed a mommy blogger group. And whenever they wanted to get attention on a positive attention on a movie they knew was going to be bad, they would uh, received bad by critics, professional critics. They would give mommy bloggers the world. They would send them on a trip somewhere, let them interview the cast buy their food, stuff like that. And it happens with bigger critics as well. But I always notice, and the reason I noticed this is because I'm Facebook friends with a Disney publicist whose like job was handling the mommy bloggers and these extravagant trips they were always on with this publicist. I was like, I know what's going on here. And then what happens is the mommy bloggers enjoy the trip and then they go and write favorably about the movie. Maybe it tends to be more of a kid movie too because, you know, it's Disney that we're talking about. 
And I was just always kind of rolling my eyes at that because it, I don't know, it just seemed so obvious to me what they, what they were doing, mm-hmm. especially when you saw what films they would be covering. Yeah, that makes so much sense, though, because it's like the kid's going to want to see the movie, whether or not Mommy Blogger gives you a favorable review. And they take little four-year-old Jack to a screening and then, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Heidi posts on social media w- with her massive following. Jack saw, I don't know, Bluey the movie, whatever, and absolutely loved it. It was amazing. I know Bluey's actually good. Parents, don't don't come <laughs> for me on that one. That's a bad example. They want it for the record, to right, your point yeah. of And the pool quotes and that, that yeah. you put on commercials and stuff, too. Have you noticed that as well? Movie commercials now, they don't always quote reviewers they're quoting people on twitter yeah like i've got i've I've asked to clear the weirdest shit for that and it's like it's always like three words that could have come from anywhere have you like do you notice that i have noticed that it could be like it was great pamela (laughs) intense it's like really out of like the 1200 words i just wrote you want it was great You want me to sign my life away for that? Sure. Go for it. <laughs> I remember um, they they did a pull quote for Once Upon a Time from Hypable. Do you remember that? We have a, I think it was Great Twists was yeah. the pull quote that aired on <laughs> national television. I think great I got, twists. Um, like, I, I think one of mine made it for like The Good Place for season one because I, I did some stuff for that the first year they were at Comic-Con. And then I, I, I think that for Outlander, they asked if they could clear something for the for your consideration campaign but i never saw that i was hoping to see it like on an fyc billboard in la and i think it just like came out in the in the fyc magazines which would have been cool to see like i was i was hoping it would be like (laughs) a bigger thing well so to run through a couple other things real quick here this reporting from vulture does this make us feel differently about rotten tomatoes i think laura you've never really been paying attention to rotten tomatoes neither does pat no I don't really care what other people think of movies. I like what I like. I'm the same way. I I will look just out of sheer curiosity, but it's not going to sway me either way. If I want to go see something, I'll go see it. I'm sure I haven't checked. I'm sure like the the highbrow critics of Rotten Tomatoes don't like my big fat Greek wedding three, but I'm going to go see it. I have a vested interest, you know? That's a trash movie you really want to see, yeah. 100% I do want to go see that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, right, it's like with Twilight. Or I'm not optimistic about this new Hunger Games movie that's coming out. I guess it's this fall, right? Mm -hmm. But I want to, I'm invested in the Hunger Games at this point. Right, we've dedicated time. we'll talk about it on the show. (laughs) Yeah, President Snow, before he was President Snow, looks hot. I got to show up for that. It does it does make me feel differently, but we'll revisit this question in just a minute. I do want to tell people, so what should you do about finding authentic movie reviews? I've used the phrase on the show before, media literacy. It's one of my favorite classes I ever took in college. Just be aware of this type of behavior happening and the influences that are at play so that you're not fooled. Also, start sticking with particular movie critics, whether it's your local newspaper, they review movies, a bigger publication. New York Times, Washington Post, BuzzFeed, whoever. Um, And also use Metacritic instead. I went on a date with a movie buff 11 years ago. Brandon, remember him, Pam? I do remember him. And he turned me on. Yeah, broke my heart. (laughs) Oh, that I don't think I remember. But (laughs) he turned you on. He broke your heart. And then you hired him on (laughs) Hypable. 
That was that was a uh, let's not social this. Can't let him see this part. Okay, so <laughs> you do the editing, dude. Like, just take it out. Not social, not social. I don't oh, care okay. if it's on the show. Got He's it. definitely not listening to this. He turned me on to Metacritic. Um, so this is like a better version of Rotten Tomatoes. They collect reviews from the world's top critics, and then each review is scored based on its overall quality. It's not just a either or. They will read the review and score it on a zero to 100, I think it is, or zero to 50 um, system. Whereas with Rotten Tomatoes, it's just a simple good or bad, fresh tomato or rotten tomato. So the scoring is much more fine-tuned on Metacritic, and they don't just cover movies. They cover TV, video games, and I think music as well. So I always turn to Metacritic for reviews these days. I do still look at Rotten Tomatoes because it's interesting. So how are our, on the panel here, perceptions influenced by reviews, word of mouth, etc.? What I thought we would do is develop our own personal criteria to wrap up this discussion. And we're doing a simple percentage breakdown out of 100%, breaking that up into a pie chart. What are we most influenced by when it comes to deciding whether or not to see a movie in theaters? What are the deciding factors? For me, I have a few deciding factors. And I will say that these things tend to stack on each other. So it's possible that a movie could check multiple of these boxes and really, you know, add up the percentage of my likelihood to go see it. So uh, my top two uh, points of impact for why I would go see a movie in theaters would be if um, it has a cast, a director, or a writer or writers that I particularly like. Similarly, if its subject matter is something that I'm really interested in. So, I mean, honestly, if it's about murder or true crime or politics, I'm probably there. Um, So I would give each of those 20%. So a good 40% of my decision making rests upon who's in it, who directed it, who wrote it, and what's it about. My third category, uh, which I assigned 15%, looks cool, (laughs) is what I would call it. I would also take friends and family recommendations, and I would give that 15%, mainly because my friends and family, the people closest to me, tend to have a pretty good idea for what I'm going to be into based on all the criteria that I just shared. Now, I will say something that can have an impact on whether or not I will go to a theater is if I can watch it on demand at home. If it is available to watch on demand at home and I don't have to go to a theater to see it, I will absolutely stay home unless it is like an IMAX masterpiece, (laughs) right? Like with Oppenheimer, for example, I was seeing that in the theater. How packed is the theater is a consideration for me. I would give that a 10% impact. If we're talking like Infinity War or Endgame, like at the height of when Marvel movies were still good, um, fuck that. I don't care how packed the theater is. Somebody could be sitting on my lap. I'll still be there. If it's a movie that I'm less enthused by and I pull up the booking and I see that there are like barely any seats left, I'm probably not going. And then 
for my last category, which I'll call general buzz, meaning word of mouth, reviews, solid marketing. I feel like Barbie is a great example of this. Uh, I would give that an 8%. Okay. That was a thoughtful breakdown. I would say like 30% for me would be if the trailer looks good to me. And then 30% is also um, like if I like the cast or somebody on the crew. So if it's like one person in the cast that I really want to see in the movie, then I'll probably watch it. Whether or not it's it's something that I have to like rent or if some, it's something that I have to go to the theater for. And then um, I would give like 20 percent to uh, recommendations by somebody that I trust. So it doesn't necessarily have to be family and friends. It could be somebody that I trust professionally, like if I feel like they know uh, if they if we usually align on opinions, then I'll probably go check out the thing, even if I wasn't you know, going to make an effort before. And then I gave 10 percent each to whether or not I can get out to the movie theater within like the first month of the exclusivity window, because it's so short now. So like if too much time lapses, I'll just wait unless like I really need to see it. But if it's not like you know, kind of like appointment television level of need, then I'll, I'll probably just wait until it comes out and I can rent it. I've definitely been there a couple times now. I've like thought of seeing a movie in theaters and then I hear it's going to be at home in two weeks. So why bother? Right. Elemental, Elemental, the new Disney Pixar movie is a really good example of that. Like I just like I wanted to see it. I didn't make it out to the theater. Then I was like, well, it's too late now. I'm just going to wait and watch it when it comes out on Disney Plus and it's out on Disney Plus now so I can watch it at home for free. <laughs> and then my last 10% would go towards whether or not it looks like something that would be worth to see on a big screen. So that's when you get like your big blockbusters, your Avengers Endgames, your to Laura's point, your Oppenheimers, stuff like that. Anything that's shot on like 75 millimeter, you got to go see it in the movie theater. So mine, um, I got a little more granular, sort of, First of all, 35% Rotten Tomatoes Metacritic reviews. I really do put most of the weight on seeing those first. I care about opinions in the aggregate. 21% are reclining seats in the center back of the theater available because I love sitting in the center back and I need those reclining seats. 19% purposely a little under the reclining seats. Friend feedback. I generally don't trust people and their opinions. I've never met somebody whose like opinions I hang on to <laughs> like very, very tightly. You know, if I hear a couple people raving about something, okay. But if just one person is telling me about it, I, that doesn't really influence me as much as these other two that I've mentioned so far. Um, 10%. Goes to, will I genuinely be entertained and get to turn my brain off for a couple hours? That's part of the movie-going experience, right? Um, 5%, do I have the urge to make out with someone in the back row? Another 5%, am I comfortable getting up to go pee during this thing? That's what I love about seeing a movie at home. You get to pause it, uh, get up, pee, walk the dog maybe. Of course, not spend money at concessions in the movie theater. And then the remaining 5% are people talking about it on social media, just generally. That, that's a much bigger influence on television. 
So one other quick comment I wanted to mention, this is from Rosalie, who's listening live on our Patreon. She said, my cousin used to depend on certain critic opinions. When someone said a movie was bad, she'd go see it first day because she thinks the opposite of that critic. Yeah, that's how I feel about Rotten Tomatoes as a whole. Like, I'll see the splatter meter, uh, the splatter meter or whatever it's called. And it's like, well... But you guys said this other movie that I really loved was crap and it was not. So I'm just going to go see it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to take a break. See if um, any movie studios want to pay us money to write a positive review about their trash film. And we'll be right back. Well, speaking of Hollywood... Diving into our third story for the show, very entertainment focused, but this is the, I think, darker side of Hollywood and the entertainment industry and an opportunity for us to check in on what does it look like to cancel somebody nowadays versus what did it look like 10 years ago? And I thought that we could start with Lizzo. So in recent months, several former Lizzo collaborators have alleged that Lizzo and her team created a toxic work environment. We're going to get into some of the specifics momentarily, but something that I thought was interesting as we were planning for today's show is why we weren't talking about this as soon as it hit headlines. The lawsuit was reported a month and a half ago at this point. And in reflecting on this show's history, I feel like maybe in an earlier iteration of the show, we would have been very quick to jump on this story. Why do y'all think that's different now? I feel like we tossed the idea around and then we just decided that things were developing so quickly that we needed to stop and wait and kind of get the full scope of what was going on here before we tackled it. And then maybe by the time that it reached its peak, because, you know, it kind of has died down, it it felt like old news and we had just moved on from it. So maybe that was an oversight on our part, trying to overprepare too much. Because you're right, it it does feel like something that we would have covered. And also, I just remember like Beyonce took Lizzo's name out of her concert and then it came back like two days later. <laughs> it's like, OK, guess guess Lizzo's uncanceled now. Yeah. Well, for for a minute there, it really did feel like she was canceled. The Internet yeah. was going hard against her. And let's talk about why. Um, So in early August, three former backup dancers um, filed a lawsuit alleging sexual harassment, weight shaming, racial discrimination, religious harassment, unfair firing, and subjecting the backup dancers to, quote, grueling rehearsals that led to one dancer soiling herself. Um, Lizzo and her dance captain, Shirlene Quigley, were both named as co-defendants. In the suit, there are some other details provided, like Lizzo directly calling attention to one dancer's weight gain and later berating and firing that dancer, implying that um, the weight gain suggested that she wasn't serious about the job. Um, It also accuses the captain of Lizzo's dance team of 
proselytizing to other performers and deriding those who had premarital sex while sharing lewd sexual fantasies, simulating oral sex, and publicly discussing the virginity of one of the plaintiffs. So some really ugly allegations in this lawsuit. Um, And unfortunately for Lizzo, in the wake of the lawsuit, multiple others who worked with her previously have spoken out in support of the dancers behind the suit. Um, Within a week or so of this lawsuit being filed, Lizzo put out a statement, obviously saying the accusations are false. Um, She added, there's nothing I take more seriously than the respect we deserve as women in the world. I know what it feels like to be body shamed on a daily basis and would absolutely never criticize or terminate an employee because of their weight. I'm hurt, but I will not let the good work I've done in the world be overshadowed by this. I want to thank everyone who has reached out in support to lift me up during this difficult time. So it's very clear that there's there's not sort of any level of admission of legitimacy from Lizzo and her camp to any of these claims. I I feel that today when these types of allegations come up, a lot of celebrities tend to give the the type of the type of excuse that's implying it wasn't my intention to make anyone feel that way. And I'm sorry if I did. I didn't realize that. My bad. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Lizzo didn't do that. It's very different in terms of the, the statements that we tend to see nowadays on this front. But it's also important to add, and I know you're working towards this, I think, but none of these allegations have been proven false yet, right? No, I mean, other than her saying no, we obviously haven't seen the result of the lawsuit at this point Um, for some extra context here. um, Although although these uh, particular backup dancers were not involved in the August lawsuit, um, it was reported that Boardwalk Pictures, which is a Lizzo entity, actually reached a settlement with 14 other dancers who alleged footage of them was used without their knowledge or consent for the 2022 Love Lizzo documentary on Max, formerly known as HBO Max. And by August 9th, six more former employees had filed their own similar complaints to the ones expressed in the lawsuit. Then by late August, TMZ reported that Lizzo intends to countersue the backup dancers who brought the suit in the first place. Um, so this seems to be in part due to photographic evidence showing the plaintiffs seemingly enjoying a backstage party at a topless show in Paris, which the lawsuit alleges they were forced to attend and very uncomfortable with. Photos have been released showing these um these plaintiffs all smiles and happy and seemingly having a good time. So what are you supposed to do? Deadpan for the photo? Like I, I'm not buying that part yet. There's also like a power dynamic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're employees. Right. And that's, I think that's what the plaintiffs are arguing is essentially you're my employer. And I felt like I had to put on a brave face to go 
and do this. Um, I don't know how deeply y'all read into the lawsuit and some of the allegations, but there are some pretty graphic allegations about the backup dancers being peer pressured to touch performers at this topless club in ways that made them uncomfortable. So it just seems like all around there, um, there are some different interpretations <laughs> about what the working environment uh, with Liz's tour company is. And to the point you raised earlier, Andrew, for a minute, it really did seem like Lizzo was canceled. But now it's crickets. Emphasis on minute. Yeah, people have moved on. TikTok was having a freaking field day. Pam, was your FYP consumed with Lizzo hate? Because I was definitely seeing people coming out of the woodworks talking about bad experiences that they allege to have had with Lizzo over the years. Yeah, it was definitely partially that. And then also the other part was just sheer disappointment from fans because this is, I mean, the the sad reality of putting your faith in any kind of celebrity is that they're only human and they're going to fuck up. And sometimes it's a bigger mess than other times, but it, it, it left such a sour taste in so many people's mouths because she stood for so much good and she was making so many strides in the body positivity movement. So then to um, have all of this come out, some of it, which did have to do with body shaming, which was what she's been combating against her entire career, just kind of felt like a slap in the face. Right. Mm. So I know. I felt really disappointed and kind of hurt. Betrayed. It really does feel like it's it's a moving target and it's kind of hard to put your finger on what's the truth at this point because, you know, there's, we don't really know if, I doubt that something like this would go to trial, but we'll have to wait and see if there's some kind of settlement or agreement. Yeah. And I'll just also add, I think one reason why people have sort of moved on, I was sort of joking about the Beyonce thing, but not really. No, and I two, think that's a good point. And that was telling. But two, now we're just kind of in like this waiting period to see what happens next. Like everybody was all shook up around Trump and all these indictments. And we still are, but we're just waiting to see what happens next. It's not an apples to apples comparison, but my point just is like in both of these cases, we're in a wait and see period. Yeah. What I find so interesting, though, is if you try to look up stories or updates about this lawsuit, anything, anything relating to Lizzo and these allegations, good luck finding anything after late August. It's because Bunker 15 is paying everybody on the internet to stay quiet about Lizzo. Honestly, I'm just like, she must have a fucking great PR team. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good for her. And she was still touring when all of this was happening. Right. Which is insane. I can't believe that this didn't blow up more. I know. I wonder how much, um, how many phone calls they had to make to be, to be like, Okay, you left her name out at this one concert. When you go to Atlanta, shout, I love you, Lizzo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and she finally did, uh, as I think was brought up earlier. Um, but it is just interesting to kind of see how how these stories develop and kind of what the 
off-the-cuff gut reaction is from the public, but also from other famous people who are like, I've got a great reputation and I don't want to be anywhere near this pile of shit. Yeah. Well, to it's surrounding back me right to now. Anders Beyonce point, she she keeps to her side of the street. She does not comment on almost anything. So it it, it is a big deal for her to voice any sort of support for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Just a question though, based on the limited information that we do have. Anything else that we make of these allegations? I know that we've had positive views of Lizzo in the past, and I'm wondering if these revelations impact that at this stage. It's still in the back of my mind, but the thing is, it's like, you know, like she's still like part of the Barbie soundtrack, for example. I know that those deals are made so far in advance, but like you hear those songs everywhere on social media still. It's interesting to me that she evaded cancellation because society is so quick to pull the plug on people. And that is what is fascinating to me about this. And I think that like it it probably is, even if you're not thinking about it critically, it's probably fascinating to bystanders too, right? Because this world is very much a follow the trend. So if you see your entire social media bubble saying, oh, Lizzo's canceled, you're probably going to say, oh, yeah, Lizzo's canceled. But the fact that people are not saying that and still enjoying her music, I think that that is what is saving her. So it's it's just really odd. And and, and like, I'm not saying all of this to, to say that we, we should cancel her. Right. Because I, I also don't really believe in cancel culture all the time. I, I I want to believe in a more like um constructive way to hold people accountable. And I think that a lot of times it can get really ugly when we're talking about cancel culture online. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like a mixed bag. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you saying that because between this story and and of course the one we're about to talk about, I've definitely been reflecting a lot on what cancel culture has looked like both online and in the real world and how it's evolved over time. It definitely feels like there's been this pendulum swing, right? Where if you're thinking about um, sort of like the 20 teens, what it looked like to get canceled in 2015, Versus what it looks like to get canceled now, and I say canceled with air quotes, it looks pretty different now, I feel. I think that there is a tendency for all of us as a culture to have a little bit of like cancel culture fatigue, where it feels like is nothing sacred, Um, everyone and everything I like is fucked up and problematic. I'm exhausted. Yeah. And the other problem is like, what does it mean for somebody to get canceled? Which is a whole other topic. We don't have time to get into that whole discussion, um, except for through what we're about to talk about. Um, but I, I think it's just exhausting too, from the perspective of like, who's actually deciding who's canceled and for how long and is this even worth the cancel effort because history shows us that people just tend to uh come back into the spotlight over time well while we're talking about that and some of this evolution 
of what cancel culture looks like. I want us to think about that 70s show. Um, don't know if y'all were ever into this. Um, I, I really wasn't. liked that. Se- really? Um, I liked that 70s too. show when I was younger. Loved was the theme song, fan. but that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would recommend revisiting it. I, I think it holds up. In a lot of ways, obviously, there's stuff about it, just like anything that's made in a different time that maybe doesn't totally land by 2023 standards. But overall, I still think it's a fun show. In the last week or so, Danny Masterson, who played Stephen Hyde on that 70s show, was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison for raping two women. Um, Masterson was first accused of rape in 2017 during the height of the Me Too movement. He, of course, denied the accusations and said each of those encounters was consensual. Um, Charges then came in 2020 as a result of a three-year investigation by the LAPD. Uh, He was later tried in 2021 and 2022, at which point the jury deadlocked and a mistrial was declared. Um, But just last week, Masterson was found guilty upon retrial and received that aforementioned sentencing of 30 years to life, um, which feels significant because so often rape cases do not result in any kind of sentencing for the accused parties. And what I thought was really interesting here is that Masterson's heavy involvement with the Church of Scientology kind of proved to be his undoing in this case. Um, So prosecutors were were able to allege that Masterson used his status as a prominent member of the Church of Scientology to avoid accountability. His victims are also former members of the church, and there were allegations in the trial as well around the Church of Scientology uh, actually attempting to cover this up. One piece of this is that Scientology officials told one survivor she would lose her membership of the community unless she signed a non-disclosure agreement and accepted a payment of $400,000. Additionally, victims allege harassment, stalking, intimidation, and invasion of privacy by the Church of Scientology when they reported the alleged abuse. The church obviously flatly denies all of this, but part of the sentencing, uh, or excuse me, part of the trial of Danny Masterson and ultimately what led to this sentencing was some pretty substantial evidence in terms of documentation of NDAs and things that the church had uh, coerced these victims into signing, saying that they wouldn't report this. Um, Also, some of the tenants of Scientology were brought to light uh, around an agreement that it sounds like the church has that members of the church will uh, handle any criminal matters internally and not report them to the police, which is just another example of an institution trying to keep bad behavior in-house and not wanting people to um, face justice like the rest of society has to. But this is where uh, Masterson's former 70s co-stars Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis got into hot water. 
because it came out that they each wrote character letters in support of Masterson to be read by the judge at his sentencing hearing. This was followed by an extremely lackluster apology video in which the duo seemed to be missing the point about why they were being dragged. They largely got called out because they have been vocal supporters of the Me Too movement and have continually promoted this idea of always believing victims. And critics of the duo have pointed out that it really doesn't compute to say that you always believe victims while also writing a character letter in defense of a convicted rapist just because he's your friend. Yeah, the fact that they were going to kind of like sneak that they thought they were going to get away with writing these and submitting these and it wouldn't be known is also just reeks of ickiness. Yeah, Iggy Azalea, um, same thing happened to her because she... uh... She wrote a character letter for some, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's a, like a hip hop artist, producer. And uh, she was like, oh, I didn't realize that they like I was told that they were going to be private. It's like that doesn't change the fact that you did it. <laughs> right. Right. So it's the same thing with this, too. The apology video was not good either. It, oh, you no. could tell it was a prepared statement. I actually thought Ashton was doing a better job than Mia in terms of reading what they were prepared. People online, society have become increasingly aware, literate, media literacy around what's a genuine apology and what's not and the best ways to handle a situation. And it just seems like this has been handled poorly from top to bottom, including with just like the barn they were sitting in front of, the clothes they were wearing. You think of the Drew Barrymore apology video, mm-hmm. too, which was also panned on the Internet. It's like you got to be really careful with this stuff. We're really aware of of bullshit when we it see it. It reads now. like a PR statement, like a canned PR statement. I mean, it was yeah. very much like we believe victims. We have supported victims with all of our work and we will continue to do so, except for the part where we wrote a letter for our rapist friend. Like, it, it just doesn't mm-hmm. match up. And in the meantime, in the wake of all of this, um, some old clips and quotes have resurfaced from, um, you know, the late 90s when that 70s show was first airing. Uh, and it kind of reminds people. Uh, of a time when Ashton was kind of a little creepy towards underage girls to remind people Mila Kunis was only 14 when she was cast in that 70s show as Ashton Kutcher's on-again, off-again girlfriend, Jackie. And he was like 19 or 20. Um, So there are these moments that have come up where he's chatting with her on a talk show and she's literally 15 and he's saying things like she's so sexy she's so hot uh there's a clip of her sitting on his lap and he says something like i only did this because i knew mila would sit on my lap and it feels really good and she's a literal fucking child so it's Pretty, pretty creepy to see that, Um, you know, obviously the age difference, not a big deal for them now because they're both adults. But looking. Yeah. Well, speaking of clips, sorry, we can play this one because it's really quick Um, on on punked MTV's punked. I believe this is from here's a clip of Ashton talking about Hillary Duff. 
Hilary Joff is in Lizzie McGuire. She also has an album out. Um, she's going to be in a movie called Cheaper by the Dozen. And she's one of the girls that we're all waiting for to turn 18. Yikes. And Laura and I were talking about this the other day, like if something like this aired for the first time in 2023, there would immediately be backlash around it. Whereas when this episode aired, whenever it did, maybe there was a little backlash, but there probably let's assume there wasn't. Why wasn't there any backlash? Today, we have the Internet where we can talk about things instantly. This aired pre Twitter, pre Facebook, like nobody like if you watched this when it aired in whatever year that was. You might think to yourself, oh, that's fucking creepy. This guy sucks. But where do you go and spread that opinion? You didn't have a place. You called your friend up and said something and that was it. So much more like not that it makes it right, but I feel like language like that was so much more commonplace. I know that you paired this up with um, some other comments that Ashton Kutcher made about the Olsen twins. I don't know if you guys remember, but there were like websites dedicated to just like showing a countdown clock. To the Olsen twins turning 18. Oh, yeah. For when that so was happening. many female celebrities. Emma Watson, yeah. too. That I remember being deep into Harry Potter like we all were. I think we all saw that yeah. all the time. I mean, paparazzi would literally try to get photos up her dress. Up her skirt. Yeah. And she wasn't even an adult yet. Not that it makes it okay regardless. But they would post that shit on countdown websites. To your point, Pam. Mm-hmm. Well, not exactly what happened with the person I'm about to name, but um, Millie Bobby Brown, yeah, the star of Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. She she's been objectified a ton, and a lot of it was happening before she turned 18, and people were calling it out. She's currently 19. That show mm-hmm. started what, like four or five years ago at this point, maybe more. Like yeah. people were really like sexualizing her and it was like really disgusting how even the media was treating her like tabloids and and like people magazines that type of thing how they were treating her it was it was really bizarre mm-hmm. and disturbing yeah in in her case too i i like i just i don't know i, I don't like to like make too many assumptions but i i just feel like i wish she had a better team because it also kind of felt to me like they were always making her seem more adult, more mature than her cast counterparts. Like anytime you saw those kids in interviews, like in the early ages of that show, like it was always like a differentiation, like look at how immature the little boys are, but like, Oh, Millie, Millie's so mature. Millie, look at how Millie's dressed. Look at how she's acting, you know? And like, that doesn't make a objectifying a minor right and it does not justify that but i also like i wish that the teen teams that often surround these young underage stars did more to kind of protect the um the innocence and did less to like make them look more adult in an effort to allow them to be objectified by the mass media and also by creepy people online yeah i think the point is this kind of behavior hasn't stopped it just looks different now right people ashton kutcher i mean at this point i don't think he would do something like this but people in general know that if they go on a tv show and they start sexually objectifying a minor like that they're gonna get some blowback but if it's some clickbait article and i remember seeing this one time with a headline like millie bobby brown grew up 
before our eyes. And she was literally 14 at the time that they wrote that article. Like, exactly. Yeah. It's just, I I remember that one. The lens has shifted (laughs) in the objectification. It's still there. Man, we could have a whole conversation about that alone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In response to all of this by last Friday, both Kutcher and Kunis announced that they would be stepping down from their roles as board chair and board observer from Thorn, uh, which is the organization that Kutcher formed in 2012 with former wife Demi Moore. Uh, And it's an organization that fights child sex trafficking. Kutcher said, after my wife and I spent several days of listening, personal reflection, learning, uh, and conversations with survivors and the employees and leadership at Thorne, I've determined the responsible thing for me to do is resign as chairman of the board, effective immediately. I cannot allow my error in judgment to distract from our efforts and the children we serve. So again, it doesn't really seem like... You get the point. It's like it. Om- it almost feels no. like a. I'm just sorry that we got caught. Type deal. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, because this is distracting to the efforts and the kids. Yeah. We're stepping down. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's you know it it calls into question because I think you know both Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis have been very outspoken. Uh, advocates and, as I mentioned earlier, very pro the Me Too movement and this idea of believing victims. And now it's being called out, well, you don't actually always believe victims if the alleged predator is someone that you have some kind of affection for. So it makes me wonder if there's kind of this pendulum swing, kind of like we talked about at the beginning of the discussion around what cancel culture looks like and, you know, whether or not we're so quick to immediately jump to cancellation, either as like a culture society, but even as people for others who are accused of doing things that, you know, are are obviously reprehensible and horrible. But yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting landscape that we're in right now when it comes to, I think, the way that we as a podcast might cover stories around people being, quote, canceled and kind of how the internet is treating people being canceled now. It, it seems like that um, that mode of somebody becoming like persona non grata for an extended period of time seems to have passed. It seems like we're getting over it a lot more quickly than we used to. I, I think this time a month from now, nobody's going to remember what Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis did, <laughs> for example. I'm not sure I'd go down to a month, but yeah, I do agree at some point there will be. Well, a- did the that 70s show reboot get renewed? Because if they're back for season two, we'll know that everything's fine. Yeah, I don't know. I tried to watch that 90s show and I could not get into it. <laughs> As of last month, it was renewed for 16 episodes, it looks like. That's a yeah. long run. And they left Danny Masterson out of that reboot too, because he was he was they already did, in the middle. He was controversial. Yeah. yeah, he was already in the middle of those trials. So, so on a related note, and on a lighter note, in After Dark this week, available at Patreon.com/slash/Millennial and through Spotify and through Apple Podcasts, we will be presenting our own character letters to a judge about each other, because. These judges are seeing cases, hearing cases about us. 
Uh, for example, I've been accused of murder. Pam has robbed a bank to afford Taylor Swift tickets. And Laura, of course, is uh, on trial for marijuana possession. So each <laughs> of us wrote a letter to the judge. And none of us have read each other's letters yet. So it should be a lot of fun uh, to put a lighter spin on this topic. Again, that's at patreon.com slash millennial. I had a lot of fun writing my letter. Me I was too. laughing, rehearsing it. I'm going to try <laughs> to get through it without laughing. We couldn't do this without your support. And we'll have news about our physical gift soon, by the way. And Bayes and executive producers will be getting that gift. And of course, anybody else who upgrades or pledges at those levels once we announce it. There's many other benefits too. Check them all out at patreon.com slash millennial or Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We do offer a free trial, by the way, and also an annual subscription. You can get a sample of the benefits if you're doing the trial, or you can save a little money if you're doing the annual subscription. All right, time for some recommendations. Pam, do you want to go first? Piggybacking off of uh, my segment for the week, I wanted to just let everyone know that NSYNC as a full group is going to be on First We Feast Hot Ones. That's the um, show where the guests eat spicy chicken wings and answer questions. It's really great if you haven't checked it out. Um, You can watch all the episodes on YouTube, but the interview questions are always really thoughtful. Sean Evans does a great job with that. But yeah, if you want to see NSYNC together for some more some more promo stuff, you should definitely check that out. It's dropping on Thursday. I want to recommend something abstract again. Sorry, Chloe, for the social media post. But it's something I think about on a weekly basis. I just want to recommend carving out some learning time for yourself. I try to do this when I have some downtime during my week. During the work day, I'll admit I don't like doing this like on a weekend or hours I'm not normally working. Um, but I just love trying to enhance my own skills or trying to like uh, learn something maybe I never would have thought about before because I just hadn't seen anybody else share it. So I'm spending time on Reddit. I'm looking at online courses. In the case of me being in audio production, I'm poking around to see what the hottest trends are in terms of audio plugins for my software to improve audio quality. I just really enjoy having a little learning time week to week. And I I don't specifically say it's Tuesday at 10 a.m. It's just when I have some extra time. I'm like, I need something to do. I could use something to do. Let me spend some time just reading and seeing what other people are doing in my industry. I love that. And I'm so sorry, Chloe, because you're going to get another kind of abstract recommendation from me. Something I've been doing for the last few weeks is really establishing a true pre-bedtime wind down routine. Uh, This has drastically improved the quality of my sleep. So finding kind of quiet activities that you can do in the hour or two before you go to bed. Uh, For me, what that looks like is taking some time to journal and just kind of get my thoughts out from the day, even create a to-do list for tomorrow so that I don't find myself ruminating over all those things while I'm supposed to be going to sleep. Um, I also like to get in like a good light quick yoga session just to get some stretching in. And doing that consistently before I go to bed has really kind of helped to wind me down and get my body sort of ready to go to sleep so that when I actually lay down, I'm not 
laying there staring at the ceiling for an hour (laughs) waiting to fall asleep, I'm actually falling asleep. So would highly recommend finding one or two quiet, relaxing activities you can do consistently before you go to bed. It really helps. So we got you, the listener, educated, (laughs) entertains, and wound down (laughs) if you take all of our recommendations this week. So before we say goodbye, don't forget that the Millennial Listener Survey is now open. This is really important to us. We would love to get all your feedback about the show and the Patreon because we have lots of ideas for the future and we want to know what you want to see. So click the link in the show notes and take a few minutes to fill out that survey. Thank you everybody so much in advance. Make sure also that you're following the show in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And we would appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can contact us by writing to millennialshow at gmail.com or by using the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. You can follow us on social media. We're Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Threads, and then over on TikTok, we're Millennial Pod. After Dark will start in a moment for patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, y'all. Bye, Bye. everyone.